G'day, I'm Jason Belmonte, and I'm gonna to talk to you about socks. Now, when you compete for up to eight to 10 hours, these are the pair of socks that you want. Belmo 300, made by Thorlo, worn by me, hopefully worn by you. Available at belmosocks.com. High Five Gear is a proud sponsor of Above180.com. H5G has thousands of designs to choose from and no hidden artwork fees. How awesome is that? Show your individuality and have your jersey tell your story. Online, you can order at www.high5gear.com today. Don't let fashion pass you by. Add H5G into your wardrobe and show off your individuality. Use code ABOVE180 at checkout for $20 off any H5G style. Thank you to all of our supporters and our fans. We appreciate it. Hey, bowlers, bowling this month is back. Bowling this month is bowling's trusted technical resource that's relied upon by thousands of serious bowlers, pro shop operators, and professional coaches. From independent ball reviews to great instructional articles on all facets of our sport, you'll find it all at bowlingthismonth.com. For less than the price of a cup of coffee per month, you can have online access to Bowling This Month's premium technical bowling content that will help you improve your game. Bowling This Month is so confident you'll be satisfied, they're offering a 14-day money-back guarantee to all subscribers. Check out BowlingThisMonth.com and sign up today. Tim Berg is ready to hit the lanes, approaching the issues that you, the bowler, want to know. From the latest equipment reviews, coaching, to drilling layouts, and the stars of the PBA. Now, here's your host, Tim Berg. Joining me in the Above180.com podcast is Andrew Kane. Andrew is a five-time member of Team USA and is currently bowling as well on the PBA Tour. Now, Andrew was also recently inducted into the USBC Hall of Fame. He's part of the 2020 class. Andrew, it's Tim Berg here. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me, Tim. Appreciate it. Always good to stop by. Well, Andrew, congratulations on being elected into the USBC Hall of Fame, part of that 2020 class. I'd love to get your thoughts and perspective, though. As someone who's made those calls, you were on the receiving end. Has it sunk in yet, and are you able to put it into words what it means to be selected for the USBC Hall of Fame? Uh, no, thanks, Tim. I, I really appreciate it, but no, it, it hasn't quite sunk in yet. You know, I I made those phone calls for three years to folks when I was president and I've heard a multitude of different reactions on the other end of the line. And I can tell you that none of that uh, prepared me for that phone call being, being on the receiving end uh, and hearing those words from, from president Carl Keelick. I, uh, I honestly thought I'd, I'd, I'd keep it together for longer than about four seconds, but no, I, I definitely was in tears and, uh, so was my family. You know, they were there with me uh, at home when I received the phone call, and it, it, it took me quite a while to process it, and I, I still haven't. Andrew, it's obviously every bowler's dream to be inducted into the USBC Hall of Fame. Was this something, though, did you have any idea that this may be coming, that uh, you were on that short list of people that might be elected? Uh, no, certainly not. And, and, you know, particularly when I was a kid, all I knew about the Hall of Fame, any Hall of Fame, was that if I bowled a lot and I won a lot of tournaments, that I had a chance to, to, to be up there with, with some of the folks that I saw in the, in the PBA Hall of Fame and at the time the ABC Hall of Fame. But never in my mind did I believe or know, certainly not know, that I would, I would be part of that, that really, really special group, that really small group. And 
I, I certainly didn't think I didn't even know what meritorious service was when I was a kid and started bowling. And so to see the direction that, that my career has taken me and, and the direction that bowling has taken me, uh, it's, it's just been pretty incredible. And, uh, you know, I think that being recognized for something such as service, which obviously it, it's very subjective, um, people have to really think quite highly of, of your accomplishments and of you and of your character and who you are as a person and, and you know, what you were able to do. And so that certainly hits me very deeply uh, to believe that, that anyone out there thinks that of, of what I've, what I've done and what I've been part of. And, uh, you know, a lot of the people, especially some, some of those on the committee, I've, I've worked with them in the past and it's something where I couldn't have done this without a lot of their help. Um, I posted it on my Facebook page, uh, that the blood, sweat and tears that, that I've poured out have been shared. My family certainly has supported me in that, but a lot of my peers that have been along for the ride and been part of the groups that I've been in where we've made some decisions for the sport, popular or not, that were very impactful. And it's just really quite an honor. Uh, as simply as I could put it, it's an honor to, to be considered for that. Now, Andrew, as far as your competing goes, you just competed at the U.S. Open out in Mooresville, North Carolina. Very demanding, very challenging lane pattern condition you guys are bowling on out there, all four of them that they put out for you guys. I'd love to get your perspective, though, and your thoughts on, can you relate to how difficult that pattern, those patterns were, the three that you bowled on, for everyone out there who's listening to this? Because I sometimes think it's very hard. We watch it on TV. It's very hard, though, as an amateur bowler to relate to just the difficulty of a U.S. Open pattern. You know, the, the simple answer, they're hard. They're, they're just hard. It's one of the hardest environments you're going to ever encounter. And it's not just from a lane play perspective, but as far as that tournament specifically, a mental grind. It's three days of, of eight games, 24 games of qualifying. And, and then if you advance, you bowl another eight games and possibly 16 heading into match play. So you know, for the main start of the main field, you bowl 56 games over, over five days. And in my case this year, uh, I didn't bowl well enough last year and, and had to bowl the PTQ. So I flew in a day early, bowled eight games, uh, was there for a pro-am and then had basically three hour and a half practice sessions the day before this 56 game marathon started. So I was already, you know, well into my week before, you know, we ever fired the gun to go. <laughs> and I would tell you that it's really difficult for the average person to relate to what goes on out there. You can watch the way guys are bowling and, and you can sit at home and say, Hey, you know, I would have, I would have made this decision and that decision, but actually understanding the way that field transitions a lane and then understanding the amount of challenges that exist in that building or any building where the U S open is held in particular moving across the house, who you follow, when you follow them, uh, what time of day you bowl your squad. There are so many factors that come into play that the average bowler wouldn't even encounter, uh, certainly not in league and even likely not even in a local weekend tournament. And so it's what I'm hearing is it's not always just even about hitting your mark in quotation marks. It's uh, everything that you just mentioned and so much more because you can hit your mark and if you have the wrong piece in your hand, you're not going to carry. You're not going to strike. You couldn't leave a two pin. You could leave a two eight ten. You could leave really anything. Yeah, this this event in particular, I would say, you know, there's a lot of times. Well, let me back up. There's a lot of times when we bowl tournaments where you could argue if the patterns are a little softer, the scoring pace is a little higher, maybe 
choosing the right piece of equipment and being in the right part of the lane is simply enough to create the difference between a guy that makes the cut or a guy that makes the finals and someone that doesn't. In this tournament, not only do you have to make the right equipment choices at the right time, but you constantly have to be thinking about how well you're going to execute the next shot and then where the next four or five shots you intend to throw it after that because the lane is constantly changing. There was so much friction in the front at Victory Lanes this week that a couple of those patterns on paper, maybe they didn't look that difficult. Maybe they looked extremely difficult. Uh, but either way, uh, they, they don't play exactly as you would anticipate by looking at a piece of paper. And so you have to follow what's on the lane. So not only are you thinking about, well, at that level, you, you really, you're, you're, you're automatic. Your physical execution should be top-notch. And if it's not, and if you're, if you're not hitting your mark or you're not throwing the ball uh, with, with the correct speed and rev rate and hitting the window on the lane that you need to uh, to create proper ball motion, it really doesn't make any difference what you've got in your hand. You, you have to assume that all of that is, is clicking at close to 100% in order to be able to focus on the other variables that exist in this tournament. And on the left side of the lane, there were two lefties made the top 24. Talk about some of the challenges or some of the things that you guys see at the U.S. Open that you might not see on any other pattern when you're bowling out there on the PBA Tour, and then also how how you try to work through those. Well, you know, at at this tournament, we bowl eight games a day, and we bowl three different patterns. So that's typically something we don't always see on tour in one event. You could argue that the World Series, we bowl on multiple patterns. Um, But the U.S. Open, we we bowl on uh, with a a different lane machine. We bowl with different oils. Uh, There's different people that have input on pattern design. So, you know, everybody's got a little characteristic. It's it's no different than than a golf course. You know, people... You hear if you golf, you hear them talk about, well, this this particular designer, they like to do certain things uh, with their golf courses. They have certain tendencies or they have certain hallmarks that they tend to follow. And so this event, you know, it's not predictable, but there are some patterns. Pattern two, for example, was 42 feet, I believe. There was a little bit of a, a speed bump, a reverse oil speed bump down lane. It caused guys to, to not be able to just burn the fronts up and, and open up their angles and throw it wherever they wanted, whether they were left-handed or right-handed. You had to control your speed and you had to control your rev rate in a prescribed window and be able to keep a ball online. And, and from there, then you try to figure out how to carry and you certainly make your spares. But on the left side of the lane, you know, we anticipated a lot of the left-handers that, that 45 feet flat with as much friction as existed in the front of the lane that certainly – the right-handers were going to get deep at some point in the block. Whether that happened in game four, five, six, really depends on the squad, uh, who's in the squad, and who you're following. But eventually I anticipated I would run out of room in the front of the lane to play some of the straighter angles. And I found myself jumping three to four zones to the right towards the end of the block uh, just just to have a pretty good look at the pocket, which, again, is okay. The scoring pace was barely 200 um, again, at that level, if I'm executing well, I should be able to get to 200 most of the time if I can hit the pocket. And let's then uh, let's move on to the show. We a lot, you know, there's a, a lot of people or some people griping about the the lower scores that we saw, and just it was really it was a shot maker show. It wasn't a show where you're going to see 240 to 250. And uh, I'd like to get your impressions of the show, of that pair that that the the TV pair that people were bowling on, and then um, you know ultimately. You know, uh, Frankie Laval wins his second U.S. Open title. 
and um, and your impressions on what you saw of everything on uh, transpire on Wednesday night. Yeah, the uh, that pair, I believe it was twenty nine and thirty. So towards the higher end of the building, all week uh, everybody had the the common theme was that people thought the high side of the building was was just a little bit tighter down lane. And I, I didn't get the bowl on that fourth pattern at all, unfortunately, since I missed the cut. Um, I, I didn't get the opportunity to bowl on it, so I, I couldn't couldn't really explain what they were seeing w- with with any specificity whatsoever. But in watching that show, uh, what I picked up on, all of those guys are great players. You've got multiple major champions, U.S. Open champions in that telecast. And they all bowl a little bit differently. And they all have a slightly different idea about what to do. You, you, you saw Belmo lofting the left gutter. And then when he got into trouble, he was trying to control the, 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 the outer part of the lane with urethane, which worked on one lane and didn't work on the other. And, you know, Simonson had a couple of great matches and then really struggled when he lost to Frankie. And then you saw Sean take a completely different tactic. You know, he, he was in the left gutter, uh, at the start of the game, just trying to control the pocket. You know, unfortunately, Frankie got out to a pretty good start and and started striking early, which was a huge, huge advantage on something that difficult, especially on TV where you, you might only bowl one game. But just to note, Frankie had the lowest rev rate of all the guys on the show. You know, He had the softest hand and the lowest rev rate, and that seemed to be the biggest key for him advancing and then ultimately winning. And yeah, so so along those same lines, because that's one of the things we hear about when we talk about physical game and what we see of people on tour out there is you need a rev rate to survive, basically. But again, the U.S. Open, a shot makers event, and like like most events are out on the PBA tour, if you make shots, you're going to be around around the cut and, and making cuts and making caches and making step ladders, and ultimately, like Frankie did, find himself winning and on top of things. Sure, sure. And, and generally speaking on the PBA tour these days, and, and this is no different in any sport, there is an advantage to having power. You know, there, it, it is, it is, it really frustrates me when I pe- hear people say it's no longer about shot making. It's only about power. It might be more about power these days, especially on tour with the caliber of players and what they're able to do. But I don't think that it's all about power. There are times that power certainly gives you the advantage over a majority of people in the field. Um, The U.S. Open, though, for example, is an event where there were times when power would give you a large advantage based on the, the given day or the given pattern or the part of the building that you were in where you could take advantage of speed and rev rate. Uh, Last night on the TV show wasn't one of those times. And there were uh, a couple of other patterns where being softer, being slower, uh, being able to manipulate your rev rate. I, I think that's one thing that people at home either don't know or tend to forget is that the best players in the world may have a large maximum rev rate. And it may seem like it's always that high, but the best ones, they can manipulate that rev rate significantly. They can dial it way down or they can dial it way up. And they can do it in conjunction with how they manipulate their ball speed. And, and, you know, that's a different way of the the old definition or the old school definition of shot making. But to me, anybody that can manipulate those two factors that are probably the largest in today's game, two independent variables that they can manipulate at the drop of a hat, that makes a pretty good shot maker. Yeah, so what's something we can look for? 
when we see a player doing that because that's something it's really hard for the the average person when you're watching on TV or even in person if you go out to a PBA event what can we look for when someone maybe is manipulating their rev rate and uh, and, and changing things up that way well you really have to you really have to learn how to read how to read ball motion read ball shape probably more importantly um, you, you know understanding that the lane is 60 feet long and let's call it three and a half feet wide, you know, significantly longer than it is wide. But when I have conversations with most people that are, that are learning to bowl or that, you know, bowl a lot of league that, that are starting to get into tournament play, they have a very good grasp of lateral movement on the lane and not as great of a grasp of how long the lane is and where their hook window is. And so when you watch these guys, it may look like the same shot, but really pay attention to, where on the front to back aspect of the lane, their ball is hooking, how much it's actually hooking. Because I find that a lot of people that I, that I work with uh, when I, when I teach, they have a very big misconception about where and when and how much their ball actually hooks. And so if they struggle with that in their own game, it, it stands to reason that when they're watching a lot of tour players, they may not be looking at quite the right things to understand how those guys bowl. And along those same lines, Andrew, you are a silver certified coach. Let's talk mental game a little bit. You talk about how the mental, it was a mental grind for everyone out uh, bowling the U.S. Open, but uh, on our local level here, bowling tournaments locally and and everything else, what's a a part of a mental game that's the biggest uh, mental roadblock for bowlers that, that could be holding them back, whether that's their league, whether that's when they head out to a tournament, or whether that's them competing at that next step for them? Honestly, and, and I say this because I've had my own mental struggles the last couple of years uh, bowling out there on tour, but, but, and, and I, I certainly like to try to practice what I preach, but I, I think perspective is the biggest issue. That's what I see. It's observation and perspective. A lot of people get very, very narrow and, and wrapped up in what's right in front of them, and they don't have, uh, they don't always consider the larger perspective of what's going on in their game in, in context. You know, they'll, they bowl league and they have a bad night relative to the rest of the field. They don't realize they actually bowled fairly well because the entire league struggled that night or somebody averages two ten in a local tournament and they're very frustrated, but they finished fourth. Well, that week the, the pace the scoring pace was lower, but what it does is it creates an image in their mind that they didn't bowl very well. Now, I don't know about you. If there were 50 of the, the better players in, in Phoenix, for example, bowling in a tournament and I finished fourth, yeah, I'm, I'm upset I didn't win, but I would think, well, I didn't have that bad of a weekend. That's something to work on. But it's really easy to take it out of context and believe that, well, I only averaged 210 and I made all these mistakes. That's not the message you want to tell yourself coming out of that event. You, you have to have some positive reinforcement and you need to have perspective of where that performance fits in the overall scheme of things. If you see yourself trending downward and you continually have that perception of your mental ability and your physical ability – you will probably continue on that downward trend. But if you look at it as though, well, I've made some progress the last few times, it's gotten significantly better, tell yourself that. Believe that you are on the right track. Because if you don't, you'll go right back into that slump, you go right back into the, the bottom of the cycle, and you constantly feel like you can't dig yourself out. And that's where I see a lot of people get in trouble. All right, well, and along those same lines, it seems like, setting good goals for you, whether it's a tournament or whether it's league is something bowlers need to need to do as well. So you can hold yourself accountable and you can work towards things 
but then you can see where you where you stack up, whether that's in a tournament or whether that's in league, and where your goals are and what you want to actually accomplish with your bowling, whether that's you're just that one-night-a-week guy who goes out there to have have a pitcher of beer with your buddies and have fun, or you want to compete more competitively and bowl more competitive tournaments. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I, and I think to your point, that's, that's really the first decision that you have to make is what type of bowler am I going to be at this point in time? You know, and that can change. Like right now, if what you want to do is bowl one night of of league and, and have fun, then what you need to make sure you get out of that is that you're having fun. If you come away from that every week and you're not having fun, you need to decide one of two things. Maybe bowling league isn't right for me, or maybe the reality in some cases is I actually want to be a better bowler. I want to bowl more and I want to bowl at a higher level, at which point you have to decide, am I going to commit to get better? And then that's, that's obviously a whole different set of circumstances, but I think a lot of, of people really just need to set a couple of big goals where you'd like to be in a couple of years as a player but also be able to set some intermittent realistic goals without those goals. Like I said, you can't have that context. You can't have that perspective. If you simply look at the next tournament as the next tournament, it's really hard to get a gauge of whether you're progressing and your brain does not like that. Well, and along those same lines regarding league, I think this is key too. I've had this brought up to me a couple different times in conversations on how people view league. I mean, you have some people that they view league every week like you're bowling, like it's the it is the U.S. Open. You know, you got to win and you're winning <laughs> your match. And then you have your next crew that you're just having fun with. And yeah, of course, uh, they want to win and, and winning comes, you know, winning's always fun. <laughs> we always have fun when we're winning in most cases, sure. I should say. But it's getting aligning yourself with the right people in league as well, because that's one thing, too that I've seen, and I've seen people make that mistake where you're bowling league for one reason and this guy's bowling league for another reason, and if if they don't mesh, that's going to create some friction on the team, and then that's going to lead back to your bowling is going to suffer as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when when leagues, I I wasn't around back in the 50s, presumably, 40s, even earlier than that, when when people first started bowling in leagues, but, you know, I always hear, in the fifties and sixties, that's when league bowling was at its, at its height is when it was growing. And when it was popular, that was the social activity. But remember first and foremost, that's what it was. It was a social activity. It wasn't, you know, always high level competition for everyone, every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night of the week. It wasn't about, we've got to stack our team or we've got to put in average caps or we've got to get all this money in a prize fund it was never designed to be that league is a social activity. It's designed to have fun in a competitive environment. And over the years, you know, that's changed. That definition has changed for a lot of people that the definition of what a league is or what certain leagues are has certainly changed. There's a lot more diversity uh, in a league these days. And, you know, along with that, the competitive environments changed the, the bowling balls, the lane oils, the, the patterns, what we bowl on, all of that has changed right along with it. And so when you decide, you know, you're going to bowl league, if it's a, if it's a pizza and beer league, a fun league, or, you know, a have a ball league, or perhaps the the Thursday night scratch league, you have to set yourself up for success in whatever you see yourself being, you know, as a, as a, as a participant in that league, if you, your goal is to go into that scratch league and win, then surround yourself with people that are going to give you the right team chemistry week in week out and are going to commit to bowling better. And, have a great time. Have a great time trying to win. And if your goal is to go with your buddies, 
don't worry so much about the score or what they do to the lanes. Switching gears, Andrew, let's discuss ball demos. You're on staff with 900 Global, so you get to work a lot of these events where you're getting some of the new 900 Global releases in people's hands. But basically, what what goes into a ball demo for you guys and ultimately what listeners should be coming out and uh, test driving some of the new equipment? Yeah, first, first, um, you, you know, you mentioned it, and I, I do have to give a lot of credit to 900 Global for, for participating and, and certainly allowing me to participate uh, in quite a few of these, these ball demos. It, it's a great opportunity, um, you know, not only to get our and, and every other company's equipment uh, in front of the consumers that will ultimately purchase this equipment, but I think there's a lot more to it than that, the intent of the ball demos. And, and you know, some people... We've had low attendance recently at some of the ones in Phoenix. Uh, we've had a lot of the demos. Last year, we had a couple less demos and higher attendance uh, per demo that was hosted. But I think that the larger ball demos do stand to benefit the uh, uh, the bowlers in that you get to try the maximum amount of equipment available on the market in the shortest window of time. One, one of the most difficult things about going into a pro shop is seeing all of those bowling balls on the wall uh, as a novice bowler, as an intermediate bowler, or as a high level bowler looking to fit another piece into your arsenal. It's just a lot of choices. And what's great is that we have a lot of great pro shop operators here in the Valley around the country that if you go in, they're going to be able to give you personalized advice. Uh, they're going to get to know you and they're going to get to understand what fits in your game but it still doesn't really satisfy that basic human need to just try things. I mean, that's the beauty of it. You just get to, you know, I had folks come up with the demo and they would say, well, what should I try? And my answer was always whatever you would like. And I think that it's, it's sometimes a little unsettling for people. It's like being in a candy store and being able to, you know, being told pick whatever you want. You can literally try anything. You can see and compare and feel anything. It's very tactile. You actually get to put your hand in a ball that is semi-fitted for you and you get to see how it reacts. You get to see if it fits what you like to see go down the lane. And that's not limited to uh, a novice bowler or a high performance bowler. That's, that's really for everyone. And the beauty is you get to build relationships with the people like myself, uh, you know, as I coach and, and I'm on a ball staff, but you get to build a relationship with the people that represent the brand and you get to build a relationship with, with the pro shop owners uh, and their staff that are out there to help you find the next correct bowling ball for you. So what is then the best way for someone to get to m the most out of that demo? Uh, I get there early. <laughs> I'd say that's the easiest thing is these demos sometimes run one to two hours and they get really busy. And sometimes there's a limited number of equipment, uh, you know, depending on the number of balls and ball brands that are participating in the demo. But the earlier you get there, the most you, you have the most opportunity to just get out and try whatever it is that you want. But, but certainly, you, you know, consult with your pro shop operator before you go to the demo and they might be able to help you narrow in on a few things, uh, you know, types of bowling balls, categories of bowling balls that you should be looking at. A lot of the demos here have, have done, uh, you know, people have printed ball sheets with what will be shown at the demo or available to try and people narrow down by, you know, balls that fit the, the the rgs and the and the differential ranges that they like in their equipment and then they can just kind of hone in on what it is they want to try at the demo they can pick it off so again you can try everything or you can try very specific things but i think the most important thing is don't be afraid to try 
a lot of people get really hesitant about wanting to go out there and try equipment. It, it's just not a, for some reason, it's interesting. It's, it's not a natural thing. <laughs> and I, I don't really know how to explain that, Tim, but there's always a lot of hesitancy by people wanting to pick up bowling balls and throw them down the lane. Uh, you know, don't get married to what's on the lane. You know, the, the lanes are run. It's not a tournament. It's not league. Um, but see what those bowling balls do. Get a feel for it. See if it, you know, those things are going to be in your bag and they're going to be a big part of who you are as a bowler and just see if they make sense for you. All right. And, and Andrew, an observation that I've had just uh, bowling at a few of these demos and even just being around them in the last, you know, two, three, four years is, I, in my opinion, personally, I see a lot of guys in that 180 and gals in that 180 to 200 average at these demos, doing what you said, trying new equipment out, getting to know their operators, getting to know some of the staff that's there like yourself. But I don't see a lot of guys in that 200 or not always a lot of guys in that 200 to, to 220 range who really could probably benefit from one of these demos to ultimately take their game to that next level as well. And of course, we're not talking about the, you know, the guys that are 230, 240, you know, for them, it's, it's probably not as much of a, a need for them to be at something like this. But uh, talk specifically to that guy in that 200 to 220 average, you might think, you know what, now nah, I'm, I'm going to pass. I don't really need to go to one of these. I, I'm all set. Yeah, I, I do think there is a little bit of that of, of, of that feeling out there. People that are people that tend to be in that average range that let let's if you really want to set a profile, two hundred to two twenty, they bowl two to three leagues a week and, and they bowl the occasional tournament. I think a lot of them perhaps think that, you know, when they see new releases come out, they've already got in mind uh, what they want to buy and they already know where it, they think it might fit in their arsenal. But the key word is there is, is they might think, I don't really know if they know. And so there's, you know, maybe a little bit of a stigma attached to, well, I'm a better bowler. What benefit am I going to have going to a ball demo? I already talked to a lot of these guys and I own a lot of bowling balls. So I don't necessarily know if I need a lot of help, but what you might, you, you might discover something about the bowling balls that you currently do throw. And you might learn something about your own game that can help you make a better choice next time. It's certainly fine if anybody wants to go out. I, I would never begrudge anybody if you want to go out and buy three or four bowling balls. That's, that's fantastic. But you might actually be able to dial in one or two that are more tailored for your game when you go down there and you have those conversations that might actually benefit you to a way that gets you from that 200 to 220 level or from a 220 to a 230 level or something that builds out your bag in a way that gives you confidence to go bowl more tournaments and to, to reach a little bit higher. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know exactly Tim what it is that prevents uh, a lot of those, those bowlers from showing up. I think some do. Um, but, but I just think, I, yeah, I agree. More could take advantage of it. I do think there is something for everyone. Well, and if I'd, I'll speak to that bowler too, here is, is one of the other things when you're at that level and let's say you're, you're, you are pretty brand specific at that time, why not use that opportunity to try some other brands and throw some other equipment, get, get that stuff in your hand and see what it does, see what reacts and even compare it to, to what you have currently in your arsenal. And you might surprise yourself because it's, it's much less of an investment to come to a ball demo and try something and then be like, it's not for me, as opposed to drilling up something from a different company, a different manufacturer, and then being stuck in the ball and you, you're in it for $220 or whatever. So I, I think, 
I mean, honestly, I would advise anyone at any skill level, you should be at those things. And, and if, like you said, it's going to give you that extra confidence, in my opinion, in your game to where you might see something or you might see a different look than what you maybe perceive. Or maybe you're, you way back when were burned by a certain company and you haven't thrown their stuff in a while. This is an opportunity to go back and try that stuff again. Yeah, and, and I think there's a lot of value in, in, in as I mentioned earlier, the, the relationships that you can build there and the person-to-person conversation. You know, we can get just about any amount of information about any of the new bowling balls on the Internet. And you can go into any forum uh, or any chat group and find, you know, people's opinions that have thrown the balls, what they think of it. But it's also really hard to necessarily know what type of player you're talking to and so the advantage in going to a ball demo, if you're in that higher performance or higher skill level category, is you can actually talk to some of the players and the representatives from the brands that, that do this for a living, that really, really know the equipment well, that understand the performance parameters and the characteristics of the equipment that they sell and represent. And it just gives a, you know, I know for some people that's, well, hey, that's your marketing. You want, you know, they want me to buy bowling balls. Sure, that, that is what it's about at the end of the day is selling, is selling product. But I would certainly want to have as information for me uh, about a product I'm considering. If I can talk to the people that built the product or talk to the people that represent the brand and they throw the product regularly, that's invaluable information. And you get it one-on-one when you show up at these ball demos. You get to talk to these people individually. 15 minutes, 20 minutes, they'll give you their time. That's why they're there. And I think that's an untapped resource. The newest member to be elected into the USBC Hall of Fame, Andrew Kane. Thank you for being here, sharing some of your insights on the U.S. Open, on equipment, and everything going on around bowling. Uh, All the best of luck with everything, and we will certainly be catching up with you again down the road. Well, Tim, thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate it.